Today on the Root Cause Medicine Podcast. You can use the wrong therapy, whether that be conventional, whether that be natural, holistic, or integrative, and not properly match it to that tumor and that behavior, you're not going to see results. But if you match it, if you target, if you create the precision and accuracy based on, again, that future that's available today, boom, that's where you get the results that we're all after. Hello, hello. I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Jones. And today I'm talking with Dr. Nathan Goodyear, the medical director of Brios Medical, where he fully believes in and takes a holistic, natural, and integrative approach to addressing cancer. If you or someone you love is struggling with a new cancer diagnosis or cancer recurrence, grab a pen as you're gonna wanna take a lot of notes with this one. Before we get started though, I wanna talk to you about something that comes up pretty often on this podcast And that, of course, is lab testing. You see, testing is one essential way to understand the root cause of an illness. If you are an integrative or functional medicine practitioner, chances are you're placing a ton of orders with a ton of different labs. The Root Cause Medicine podcast is created by Rupa Health. Rupa is the best way to order, manage, and track results from over 30 different labs in one single place for free. Thank goodness. No need to create and log into multiple portals ever again. If you are a practitioner, make sure you go sign up at rupahealth.com to create a free account today. Now, let's start the show. Dr. Nathan Goodyear, welcome to the Root Cause Medicine Podcast. Great to be here, Dr. Jones, the Root Cause. I love the name. Root (laughs) Cause. I figured you would, especially the area of oncology that you're in. I was thrilled to have you as on as a guest because, man, we get so many questions around cancer. Every, I'm, I'm sure you do, but when you are on the Root Cause Medicine podcast, everyone says, like, what is my root cause? What is the one thing that caused my cancer? Or what is the one thing that can, quote, get rid of my cancer? So we're going to dive into all those questions as we get going. But before, for those people who don't know who you are, give us a little background as to how you got into this, what you do, what you stand for, and then we'll we'll keep going. Absolutely. So what I'll do is I'll start where I am now, and then I'll kind of go back a little bit in <laughs> retrograde fashion. So I'm a medical director here at Brio Medical in Scottsdale, Arizona. We were talking beforehand how everybody's dealing with snow and ice, and uh, <laughs> it's supposed to be 70. So I was like, oh, shucks. <laughs> But anyways, so I'm the medical director here at Brio Medical, Scottsdale, Arizona. We are a natural, holistic, integrative cancer healing center. And each one of those words are very important because we're natural. We want to be as natural as possible. Holistic, we want to impact the whole. We want to heal the whole. One of the things that conventional medicine gets sidetracked on is they target a tumor so much, they get tunnel vision, that they'll destroy parts of the body, the immune system in particular, in the process. We want to recognize that we want to target a tumor. We want to eliminate a tumor or cancer, wherever it may be, but we want to heal the body. That is the ultimate objective. Hippocrates said, help and heal the body, but first, at least do no harm. So healing is what we're after. That's the holistic and an integrative. We want to integrate different therapies together. Integration can be the integration of natural therapies, holistic therapies, or conventional. So all of this can be brought to bear to heal the body because you talked about everybody wants to know what's that one answer to cancer and i hate to break it there is not one i think understanding the complexity of cancer is the simple part 
just recognize that it is complex and say, okay, now let's get dirty. Let's go at it. And so from that standpoint, how did I get into this process? Well, it's a journey. One of the things I always ask all my new patients when they come in is tell me your journey. Tell me your story as it comes to this. And my story is similar to theirs. I got into the movement of integrative medicine like most people would. I did started in 2006 with hormones. I cut my teeth with hormones. What so often happens when you're talking to hormones, whether to patients about hormones, whether that is through testing, test results, or therapy, the question always comes to the front, what's this impact on my cancer risk or my cancer past? Great questions, absolutely necessary to answer. So that's how I started to move into the cancer world because as I just progressed through integrative practice over the years, more and more cancer patients started to make their way into my practice. Then I developed a tumor of my own, a rare tumor called a pheochromocytoma, where I developed blood pressure issues that were insane. And I was a diabetic despite being very physically active and vegetarian, et cetera. So at that point, I knew once that issue was put to rest behind me, I knew that my calling, my bold mission in my professional career was to heal patients with cancer, to give them hope, because there's no word that rips hope from people more than cancer, and actually teach other doctors how to heal. So that's kind of the underlying principles, hope, heal, and teach that drive me on a day-to-day basis. I love that. And I don't think I realized that you had a FEO, and that's what drove you more into this field. When I was a resident, I saw I had a patient, my very first FIO, and I was thought, oh my goodness, I don't think I'll ever miss this again with the blood pressure, the pulse, the, the, all the symptoms. Yeah, it's kind of one of those things that I went to my doctor and I was a bad patient because I tried to put it off. But when my nurse, doctors, we are the worst patients. We are the absolute, absolute worst. <laughs> I mean, it's we're, we're terrible. My wife tells me that. So it's like, okay, I'm doubly bad. But when my blood pressure was like 300 over 120, I knew I had a problem it became an issue where I couldn't function. And I think the perspective of being a patient with a tumor, there's such a problem with cancer where when a patient is sitting there that is on the other side of the desk and the thoughts and the emotions that go into that, unless you sit there, you can't imagine what it's like. You can't imagine the thoughts of your mortality. You can't imagine the impact thinking about your wife, your husband, your partner, your kids. And what's the future hold? Have I prepared them? What does my future hold? All of these things come into the front and it's hard to really recognize that connection from a doctor's perspective until you sit there, until you sit there. And then all of a sudden, what those patients experience hits you right between the eyes. Yeah. And I think... Not, of course, not that I would wish cancer of any type on anyone, but I would agree with you here in Portland, the oncologists that I refer to, the ones who have a personal experience from a heartfelt human perspective are just wonderful. Yeah. Everyone's wonderful, but like they just get it. They have sat on the other side of the desk and know what it's like when they tell their patient their diagnosis and go forward from there. When a patient's diagnosed with with stage four cancer, and I don't use that phrase stages because it evokes fear. A job of a physician is not to evoke fear. 
that patient that comes in that has cancer that spread to liver or brain or bone, they know they know where they are. What they want is they want somebody that's going to come alongside them and said, let's see how far your body will go in this process of healing. They don't want somebody to come in and say, yeah, you're done. That's not what they're looking for. And that honestly, that's not what it is to be a physician. There's nothing in our history, historically, nothing that says we are to rip hope from people. We are not to give them false hope. We're to give them real hope, but we're to give them hope and be honest with them in that journey. So those docs that have that experience, they absolutely can obviously provide that empathetic conversation. Yeah, definitely. Which actually, let's start there. Again, I know I said in the beginning that everybody wants to know what's the one cause or what can I do or what brought this on? And I want to get to that maybe in the second part of what you've seen over your years with all this experience, the tips and tricks and tactics that can maybe help reduce risk. But now let's start. Somebody has made an appointment and they have come to your clinic and they have been diagnosed with cancer. Where do you start? And obviously, this is a very broad question. There are a lot of types of cancers, stages of cancers. But where can somebody expect to start? Or where, even if they don't live in Arizona, can't get to Arizona, they're listening to this, they're looking for hope, what are things that they can ask their doctor to hopefully expect on this journey? Yeah, so I think a lot of it begins on their story. So I always have our patients tell us their story, their journey to this point. And that helps to recognize what doors need to be opened. But I probably answer that question by really reaching into the future of medicine that's really available today. That's the whole area of what's called multiomics, which is genomics, epigenomics, proteomics, transcriptomics, metabolomics, immunomodulomics, whatever you want to call it, omics. But it's just this future of scientific research that is starting to really get into the application clinically today. You hear a lot of uh, conventional oncological research and marketing and medications talking about targeted therapies, but this really had its origin in the integrative movement. And that's what we're talking about is targeted. So what I would tell patients to do is to be aware that the ability to be precise and accurate and targeted in therapies is much more available today than ever. So the future, not the Star Trek, but the future aspect of science is actually available today. So what we do is these patients come in and once we go through that history, we dive into that through genomic testing, through sometimes epigenomic, transcriptomic, proteomics, trying to, and even the metabolomics, trying to understand what is the dysfunction that's present? What is the behavior, the characteristics that the cancer has taken on? What is the immune dysfunction that's present? And really try to target create a targeted treatment program for one that targets the tumor and one that heals the body at the same time. Because the cancer itself is not some, I always make it jokingly, I say that it's not some bad Sigourney Weaver Aliens 54 movie that is implanted in them. What it is, is it's simply, these are cells that are of that individual, but they have become a very abnormal, adulterated form of themselves. So they're not something different. They are that individual, but they are a very abnormally expressed form of them. And then what that cancer does is it starts to manipulate its environment and it starts to use the body against the body, but for the benefit of the cancer. So really trying to understand that process as best as we can and then work from that 
to target that for this individual, for that type of cancer, for that stage of cancer, from a natural, holistic, and integrated perspective. So that's how we bring that to bear. Yeah. And I would imagine a lot of people listening right now, even with the amount of education on social media, have not heard any of this before, whether they have or haven't had cancer. So give us an example or maybe the common themes you see in some of these omics. Like what, when you do somebody's genomics or epigenomics or proteomics, just a few common things to give people a wet their whistle a little bit of what they might hear and what that means to you. You bet. So let's, let me just give you a couple examples. So we'll do testing of the tumor. We'll do testing in blood work. We'll do testing in urine and we'll do testing in saliva as well because we look at hormone and hormone metabolites because all of these play a role here as well, both in an obvious direct perspective, but indirect as well. But so genomics, let me give you an example there. Genomically, we see probably well over 50% of P53 expression or other tumor suppressor genes that are turned off. So when you look at the science, P53 is altered in at least 60% across the board of cancer types. And that is a tumor suppressor gene that gets turned off. And that name really indicates its benefit, which is it it suppresses tumor growth. So you can see how cancer would turn that off and that would provide a survival advantage to it. And so that's what happens. And, and I think it's important here to recognize too that cancer really, these cells in the early phases, this is an adaptation of survival. So in the short term, you can actually look at this and go, well, that's a survival advantage. This cell is getting insult. It's adapting to its environment to try and survive. But then what happens is it starts to take on these adaptations and these adaptations beget adaptations, which beget adaptations. And then the environment, all of this starts to then develop into this thing we call cancer. So another one would be CMYK. This is a proto-oncogene. We see this expressed probably in 40%. So this is genomically what we see on just an isolated level. Of course, there's many others that you can see in that process. So then let's move into something like metabolomics, which I believe is really the bigger function because metabolomics is really just looking at the metabolism. What is the functional environment in and around the cancer cells? And here you have to look at things like Warburg effect. I know that's a commonly discussed phrase, but it's actually metabolic pathways. It's metabolic disruption. And you can actually see evidence of that in conventional, just straight regular labs, but also in more specific. So you can see you know, elevated lactate, you can see elevated LDH, you can see certain parameters, even a test called a glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase, which most integrative practitioners will use to say, well, you're normal here, so we can give you high-dose vitamin C. Well, this is an enzyme that gets turned on as a part of that dysfunctional glucose metabolism that cancer uses. So you can actually follow that as a metabolomic marker. That's another example. And then looking at immunomodulomics, which is a word I made up, by the way, is looking at immune dysfunction. We can look at lymphocytes. We can look at hormone metabolites because these impact that arena. So looking at, for example, T4 and T3, this can non-genomically manipulate the immune system in a pro or anti-cancer way. So this concept and looking at these multi-omic areas can really give us good insight to 
what the cancer is doing, how the cancer is behaving, and how the cancer is manipulating its environment. Now, we bring in some common themes to this. So, for example, if a patient has colorectal cancer, vitamin C works really well there. But we want to be precise. There was a really nice study that was just published, and I think it was out of Europe, I think. And they looked at chemotherapy plus some immunotherapeutics with vitamin C. And it was really interesting because they said, well, we didn't really see any benefit by adding vitamin C to the patients receiving the chemo and the immunotherapeutics, but only in the patients that had RAS mutations. Well, RAS mutation is a genomic mutation that promotes growth. Vitamin C directly targets RAS mutations as it does other things, CRAS and BRAF. So it's like, They're saying that vitamin C doesn't help, and then they say out of the same breath of their mouth that it does help if you target it. It's targeted. The whole point here is to target, and we just choose to target it with holistic, natural, and integrative therapies. And it still works there, but you got to target it. You can use the wrong therapy, whether that be conventional, whether that be natural, holistic, or integrative, and not properly match it to that tumor and that behavior, you're not going to see results. But if you match it, if you target, if you create the precision and accuracy based on, again, that future that's available today, boom, that's where you get the results that we're all after. Absolutely. And how many, I mean, this is a rhetorical question, but the targeted part is so important because how many of colleagues read the title, vitamin C doesn't work, and tell their patients no, no, I'm not referring you for vitamin C or we don't do vitamin C. There's a study that was published out of Europe that shows it doesn't work. Yet the whole key word and the whole premise of this is targeted, personalized. Yeah. And it does work if you have that. And it's just kind of, and the other thing about that study, and I thought about, I need to, I need to record a video talking about that because there's so much about that. When you look at vitamin C, it's the flagship of integrative medicine. And so that's why I talk a lot about it because I want, not just patients to recognize that there is tremendous science behind it, but also for doctors to recognize that as well. And so when you look at that particular study, they didn't once check vitamin C levels, not once. (laughs) So what happens is you have doctors who don't understand pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics as it relates to vitamin C. And this applies to everything meaning they don't understand the natural, holistic, and integrative world. And they create studies that are not maybe, whether intentionally or not, are designed to fail because they didn't check vitamin C levels. And the listener here might go, "Well, well, I don't understand that. Why is that relevant? Well, what we know from research is that with vitamin C, we need to achieve a certain plasma vitamin C level. We need to reach the tumor site, the tumor microenvironment, We need to penetrate the tumor. We need to penetrate the hypoxic and the normoxic areas of the tumor, and we need to saturate it. And we need to maintain that saturation as long as we can. Well, if they're not checking the vitamin C levels in the blood, we have no concept of where those levels even were. And we know from research by those like Riordan from decades ago that there's a plasma vitamin C range we need to achieve. So they have no idea whether they achieve plasma vitamin C levels that are therapeutic at all. That would be like going to your doctor and saying, oh, you have high blood pressure, giving you a blood pressure medicine, not worrying about the dose. And then you come back and the doc goes, yeah, you look fine. How do you feel? I feel okay. Then you're good. All right. They don't even check it. There's a complete disconnect. But 
they, in that last breath, said, well, it did provide an increase statistically in the progression-free survival for those that had positive RAS mutation. And I was like, bingo. Mm-hmm. You made the point, and you didn't realize it. Mm-hmm. Probably didn't even make the title. No, that wasn't in the title. Or the abstract, yeah. No, that wasn't in the title. No, it was in the abstract, which was oh. really interesting. That was interesting, but not a lot of discussion about it, though. You should make a video. That's important. Because unfortunately, I mean, you know this, I'm not even in the cancer world at all, but I've heard multiple times practitioners put down vitamin C. No, no, that doesn't work. No, no, like we don't do that. No, no, that's not important. We had a recent patient who we actually referred for radiation because they needed it, okay? What I tell people about integrative, and I say this, I always want to speak to people so that they understand it. And I said, look, if you broke a hip, I wouldn't tell you to just go take more vitamin D. Yeah, <laughs> right. People laugh at that just like you did, but they recognize what that means. It's like nobody wants hip surgery, but if you break your hip, you got to repair that. So if somebody has a brain tumor, somebody has bone metastasis, we must, especially pathological fracture, we must come in there and stabilize that situation because that's a life-threatening problem. So looking at it here with vitamin C, and I refer this patient out, I told the patient, we'll do vitamin C high dose to accompany the radiation. And the, the radiologist oncologist said, no, 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 you can't do that. They said, because it's antioxidative. And I said, okay, this physician, unfortunately, doesn't understand the difference between high dose pro-oxidative vitamin C and oral low dose antioxidant vitamin C. They are different. They are simultaneously the same and true, but different. High-dose vitamin C is pro-oxidative in cancer cells. This applies to other therapies like curcumin and hyperthermia. But in a low oral dose, it is antioxidative. But also, it's much more profound than that. High-dose vitamin C in cancer cells will be pro-oxidative, but in healthy cells, actually will be antioxidative. That dualistic principle holds true for many different natural and holistic therapies. That's the difference between a natural therapy it tends to be very, very anti-cancer, but also protecting healthy cells. But conventional medicine just comes in and shuts everything down. So it's just a different approach. So here was a patient that was confused because the oncologist or the radiologist oncologist here didn't recognize some basic principal differences about vitamin C and dosing. And so it was a doctor that was uninformed making a recommendation, and it was really confusing the patient. And for those who are listening and maybe don't understand the difference between when you say the high-dose vitamin C, you're talking vitamin C in an IV versus somebody who's got a thousand milligrams in their capsule or 250 in their multivitamin. That's very, very different dosing and therefore therapeutic approach. Yeah. Thank you for that clarity because you're exactly correct. And the, you cannot achieve a pro-oxidative anti-cancer effect with oral vitamin C. The research is, is very clear on that. You may achieve what's called 100 micromolar, which is not even close to the anti-cancer level that you need in the blood, which is at least 1,000 micromolar. But to really be effective against cancer, you have to achieve 20 plus thousand micromolar, which is 20 millimolar, which can only be achieved with high-dose IV vitamin C. So there we're talking about people go, well, I took 50 grams. And I go, well, that's great. But I'm often given 100, 150 or higher grams of vitamin C, in many cases, at least three times a week, if not higher, if not more frequent, 
based on these patients' labs and plasma levels, tumor burden, body size, size, inflammation, all of these things come to bear to require an alteration in dose. So for most people, it's 100 grams and up three times a week. And do you have a rough percentage of how many of your patients' vitamin C is part of the protocol, part of the targeted treatment? Yeah, because most of the patients that we see are advanced terminal, especially bone metastasis. I'd probably say 45 to 50% of the patients that come to us have bone metastasis or are dealing with recurrence. 90% of the patients, I think, are probably advanced and recurrent in our patient population is probably 91%. But so in that instance, vitamin C is going to be a part of almost every one of our patients there because of a couple of different mechanisms. One, vitamin C stimulates the immune system. That's awesome. Two, vitamin C actually pro-oxidatively does target cancer stem cells. Well, that's a big issue with recurrence. So that's great. And then if we're dealing with bone metastasis, vitamin C works really well in uh, penetrating cancer that is growing in bone. So for a lot of our patients, and then vitamin C is incredibly metabolomically active against the cancer cells, but not in the non-cancer cells. So it's really a foundational therapy. And I talk a lot about vitamin C, as I mentioned, just because it's the flagship, but there's curcumin, there's quercetin, there's melatonin. There's so many other things that we use, hyperthermia. I mean, we even use IPT, which is that low-dose targeted chemo. We bring all of these things to bear, hyperbaric, all of these things to bear to sequentially and provide a combination therapeutic approach to target all that precision and accuracy that we talked about in the beginning. And I want to touch on the the reoccurrence because obviously that's a big fear for a lot of people. They got cancer, they quote beat cancer, and now they're constantly looking over their shoulder. Is it going to come back? Before I do that, will you just clarify the difference between pro-oxidant and antioxidant? Because of course, we get marketed to, this is an antioxidant. Green tea is an antioxidant, right? Melatonin, vitamin C, vitamin D, quercetin, all these things are antioxidants. But in a pro-oxidant, what's the difference? Yeah, so let me phrase it this way. Let me give you a specific example. And let's use vitamin C again. So really when you get down to pro-oxidative and antioxidative, to be specific and you this as well, it's a buffering system of electrons is really what it is. But here, when you look at cancer, the vitamin C actually in cancer cells in a pro-oxidative therapeutic approach, what it's doing is, is it depletes the cancer actually of glutathione. So it depletes the cancer cell of the ability to detoxify. This is why I'm opposed to glutathione in patients with cancer, because it might be sidestepping some of what we're trying to accomplish. And by depleting the cancer cell of this reduced form of glutathione, it lacks the ability to share electrons. And in that, it lacks the ability to buffer and counter oxidative stress. What I tell people about oxidative stress is it's inflammation. Everybody goes, I still don't get it. So think about your car. You got a beautiful car, beautiful whatever car, Porsche, whatever car you like. Sit it out in the weather for 20 years. Don't take care of it. What happens? It becomes rusty. It doesn't work as well. That rust is oxidation visibly. So what we're talking about there is kind of a a molecular presentation of that same process. So pro-oxidative is actually coming into the cancer cell. And for lack of a better term, it's creating oxidation, not rust, but take that picture and say oxidation, think the car is not going to work well. It's not going to start well. The door will creak and crack when it opens. It's just not going to work right. And in that, that's going to trigger 
the cancer cell to actually hopefully promote cell death, apoptosis and other mechanisms. So it's really overwhelming the cancer cell with the inability to handle oxidation or stress or inflammation. And as a result, it destroys itself. Now, counter to that, antioxidative is the ability to counter the inflammation. It's the ability to balance that oxidative process, prevent the rust, prevent the creaky doors, the poor turnover when you turn the car over. So they are very different and the dose and the environment dictate those effects. So I hope that helped to explain that to your listeners. Yeah, definitely. And especially because sometimes, you know, and I understand antioxidant is marketed so much and that I people freak out, oh my gosh, vitamin C, it's going to kill all my cells. We're specifically talking high-dose vitamin C IV, and it's very intelligent. It's going to go for those cancer cells and leave the healthy ones alone. Yeah. And the beauty of this, and this applies to doctors too, because every cell is going to receive a therapy differently. So an environment of cancer. So when people say, well, I have cancer, the concept is my whole body has cancer. And that's not the case. There are healthy environments in your body working just fine. And so when you then give a therapy, the assumption is it's going to be the same effect in cancer environment as the healthy environment. And research is just showing that is completely untrue. So here's what they did with vitamin C is they were able to show that in cancer cells, it depletes the cancer cells of active glutathione, the reduced form. But in the healthy cells, it doesn't do that at all. So that's proving the positive. Then they came in and said, let's prove the negative. They said, let's give N-acetylcysteine. Yeah, yeah. N-acetylcysteine is a precursor to glutathione. So they gave N-acetylcysteine as they continued vitamin C. And in cancer cells, that negated the anti-cancer effect. So you prove the positive, you prove the negative, but at the same time, you're seeing this only occur in the cancer environment, not the healthy environment. Now, obviously, as cancer progresses, you see a tilting where there's much more cancer environment and healthy environment. And that's actually where the body tends to decline very rapidly. Right. Right. All right. Well, going back to recurrence, because this is obviously going to be a hot topic as well. Like I said earlier, people are looking over their shoulder if they've come through cancer and then they want to know why. What is the deal with reoccurrence? What do you see with reoccurrence in all your years of experience? Well, so this is where I tend to drop bombshells. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) We're here for it. I did one on TikTok a couple of weeks ago and actually my one of our marketing people said, what do we do about this? I say, what do you mean? He said, you're going viral on TikTok. I was like, oh, really? I didn't realize that. He said, yeah, you've had 300,000 views in in three hours. I simply mentioned an article that showed how full-dose chemotherapy will shrink a breast primary tumor, but then cause it to spread. All I did was mention that study. Now, that's been reproduced over and over and over again. Okay, so it's not anything that's earth-shattering. I was just saying, look, there's evidence that shows that chemotherapy, full dose, radiation, and surgery cause cancer to spread. And you would have thought I had spoken the most blasphemy thing in the world. Now, it was probably 60, 40, 60 positive, 40 negative. I was just simply quoting, discussing a study. But it wasn't just the study saying, look, we see this. The study was actually describing the mechanisms. And there's other studies that have shown and proved the same thing. So getting into recurrence, When you look at the treatment of cancer, we have to recognize that a lot of what occurs in the current top three treatments today, chemo, 
full dose, radiation and surgery, they can shrink a primary tumor. You can cut it out, they'll shrink it. But research is very clear that it also can set up a situation where it spreads. Now, that's important because 90% of morbidity and mortality associated with cancer. So the vast majority of issues associated with cancer, including cause of death, is when it spreads. It's when it spreads. So if we are instituting a treatment from a conventional standpoint, which we don't do conventional oncology, very clear on that, we're integrated natural and holistic, and we cause cancer to spread, that is a problem on gargantuan levels because now you've taken something that may be more confined and controlled to one that is now metastatic and quote unquote is conventional would say not curable, though that's not a scientifically validated clinical endpoint. So in that aspect, it's like, what have we just done? We've cut off our nose to spot our face. Now, it will give time frame where a patient could say, I'm in remission or cancer-free for two years. The problem there is when it recurs, the environment was still there. The cancer cells were still there. We just didn't see it. We just didn't see it. And in fact, there was an article, a study, and I'm going blank on the title of it right now, but they actually looked at patients that had been, quote unquote, cancer-free for over two decades. And what they found is they found that in those patients, there were still detectable clinical levels of circulating tumor cells of the variety that they had still circulating in the body. Wow. So the concept of what we understand with cancer, you may be in no evidence of disease, which is fabulous, is fabulous, but you must continue the process of working to heal because the dysfunction is still there. In many cases, probably even the cells are still there. We just can't see it. The body moves through this process of what's called immunoediting, where the immune system will work and balance itself between keeping the cancer in check, but keep, but almost setting it up so that it'll spread. So there's a time frame there where the immune system is holding it in check, but it's almost like it's a ticking time bomb. So what I tell people is your life will never be the same because we must change the way you live to make sure we stay ahead every day. Healing, and I'll use this analogy. I read an article many years ago where they were interviewing this couple that had been married for 62 years. And they asked him, they said, how did you do this? How did you have this successful marriage of 62 years? Their answer wasn't, we just woke up one day and there we were. Their answers in their own way were very unique, but very similar. They said, we woke up every day committed to it. And we woke every day and we worked at it. Doesn't mean we had every day that was good. One day was bad. One day was good. One year was good. One year was bad. That's what healthy living beyond the cancer diagnosis is. It's a commitment every day to healing. You're going to have some days where you do good. You're going to have some days where you don't do good. But that's the process of therapeutic approach and healing to take beyond cancer. And that's one you have to take because what we are now understanding about cancer is almost in a way that imprint is still there and we don't want to let our guard down. Man, say it louder for the people in the back. (laughs) Oh, I wish how many I had. I, again, I didn't do cancer in practice at all, but I, I was in women's health hormones and I diagnosed several breast cancers, passed them on to my colleagues who were way better than I was. Or I would have women come in and say, I had breast cancer 10 years ago. It's come back. And in that time frame, while it was a wake-up call then, what I would hear from in their story was they weren't taught to do that. They weren't taught really how to take care of themselves, to work on it every day, to focus on their health. And they would have some sort of triggering event, whether it was a big health sickness, car accident, 
a divorce, a death, something terrible happened and their immune system said, I can't keep this balance as you described it anymore. And it would tilt back in the favor of cancer and that would come back. And I thought, gosh. We even understand it used to be thought that cancer went through this kind of predictable sequential process of spread. We are now understanding again in the literature that it's a lot more complex than that, which is cancer cells will actually send circulating tumor cells out very, very early. Now, fortunately, that process is not very efficient. It's not very effective, but there can actually be the settling of distant metastasis sites early, early on that just go dormant. They go quiet. That's how, in some cases, you can remove a tumor and it'll pop up metastatic within months. People go, how is that possible to go that fast? Was it there? They didn't see it. There seems to be some kind of suppressive mechanism from that primary tumor research says that when you remove it, it's almost like these quiet areas just pop up. So our understanding continues to grow to better understand this process. And that's why it has to be an active process. I tell people healing is not a passive process. It's active. The word physician in Hebrew is rofe, which means healer. I think why patients are not being taught this is because doctors have forgotten our purpose. We are healers. We are not prescribers of medication or those that cut organs out. Now, Sometimes those can be helpful, but we have to recognize what we really are about, and that is we are healers. That is the root of what we do. Amen to that. (laughs) Absolutely. As we're winding down and wrapping up, I do want to touch on some of this information that you educate your patients on. Obviously, we've discussed vitamin C quite a bit. We discussed other modalities that you use as part of your integrative holistic focus, but as you're educating your patients or somebody's listening to this right now, lifestyle tidbits, like this everyday work, if somebody's listening to this, go, what does he mean? What does he mean I need to work on this every day? What do you coach them on? Well, yes, we've talked about fancy things, flagships, and everybody (laughs) focuses on the IV therapies. And we've not even talked about photodynamic therapy. We've not talked about methylene blue, all these other supplements, Repurpose medications. I mean, oh, I'll have you back. We'll do a part two. <laughs> there's, and we haven't even touched on medical cannabis. Okay. So, which is awesome. But simple things, nutrition. Everybody recognizes junk in equals junk out. What I tell people about nutrition is nutrition is simply a means of communication with your DNA. If you feed your DNA crap, don't be surprised if what you get back is a heap load of the same crap. But if you feed your body nutrition, if you feed your body what it needs to function correctly, repair mechanisms that have broken, reduce inflammation, and you do that through really a good balanced program, we approach it from a plant-based but a balanced program. I know there are out there that advocate certain types, broad-based, but you can't do that in cancer. And so nutrition is where it all begins, all begins that way that it's becoming a harder issue to deal with today for sure. And when cancer is present, you have to take that much more diligently, but all begins with nutrition. What I tell people there, don't forget it's what you drink as well and what you put on your skin and the environment that you live in, in your house, in your car, et cetera. But the environment that's most important is in here, in your body. But it's not just environment physically, it's environment emotionally, it's environment psychologically, it's environment spiritually. All of these things also play a role there. I mean, they've done research on people that pray they do better in cancer treatment, okay? So people that I've heard this time and time again, 
where patients, and you see this in case reports and case studies where they're diagnosed with cancer and they just go, that's it, I'm going to a beach somewhere. And they just completely de-stress their life and it just goes away. Now, it's not wildly prevalent, but there are case reports of that being the case. So obviously helping your body combat stress, reduce your stress. When you talked about instances triggering stimulation or recurrence, a lot of what you mentioned there is stress. Exercise. You know, these are just daily life. Control stress, build the spirit, build emotional balance, build good psychology, build good relationships, eat living, healthy food, and then also exercise. So simple exercise, not training for a marathon or something, but just simple exercise like cardio. And what I tell people, the biggest step there is resistance training, especially for people like myself that are over the age of 50. Women go through menopause and everybody recognizes it. Nobody recognizes it when men do it. Every man that's driving around in a red convertible, we just express it differently. But anyways, I digress. (laughs) resistance training is very important. The research shows that resistance training with cancer and actually for people beyond the 50 is most important form of exercise. So about living an active, healthy, balanced, stress-free environment, this is foundational to cancer prevention and it's foundational to cancer treatment. And it's one that can't be overlooked, but that's what it takes to commit every day to do that. Now we're coming up on the holiday season. Are we all going to maybe partake of a little bit of something we shouldn't? Well, of course. That's about living. Are we going to maybe not exercise as much? Sure, sure. Are we going to push ourselves a little bit hard and stress ourselves and not sleep well and then all get sick? Yeah, that's the end. <laughs> so the point there is there's going to be ups and downs, but you just want to make sure that those ups are greater, more prolonged, and more consistent than those downs. I love it. I love it. And it's practical, tactical, free, cheap, and easy. I'm all about those things. We talk on the podcast because when you get told the C word or tumor or metastases, then it's a real wake up call. Then it's expensive. Then it is going to consume a lot, of course, of your life, your time, energy, and spirit. So if you can do what you can now, a little bit every day, bet more up days than down days, reduce that risk. I absolutely love it. Yeah. What I tell people is we take better care of our cars than we do our own bodies. We take better care of our dogs and our cats. <laughs> yeah, Especially down here. That is for sure. Here for our bodies, we wait until they break. Mm-hmm. And it's like, that is the worst thing we should do. It's about being proactive. And then patients, sometimes I'll get patients said, but I have taken care of my body. And I said, imagine where you would be if you hadn't. We can't answer that question. If you didn't do the things that you were doing, would this have occurred earlier? Would this have occurred more aggressive, more widespread? We can't answer those questions. But what we know is that research shows these therapies do, they do attack the cancer. They can augment conventional therapies. They are therapies in and of themselves. So from that standpoint, we have to extrapolate prevention. But there are good preventative epidemiologic studies that look at that, that show that is also the case. Well, Dr. Goodyear, if you have time, I am absolutely having you back for a part two because I know people are thinking to themselves, what is methylene blue? And what is this cryotherapy you talk about and insulin and curcumin and hyperbaric and all the stuff that gets whispered, but not fully explained, especially when it comes to cancer. So I really appreciate you being on the Root Cause Medicine podcast today. Tell everybody where they can find you, but especially where they can find this viral video. 
Yeah, well, again, I love the title. It's root causes. You know, we didn't touch on you know, specialty testing and root causes. Oh, we have so much to talk about. <laughs> we didn't even talk about that. So, but you can find, of course, I'm the medical director at brio-medical.com. You can find also find me on my personal website, drgoodyear.com. And on there, you're going to find all of the different things that we do. I will be also launching my own podcast. I've actually done podcasting before. I love it. Absolutely love the medium. So really excited because in podcasting, I can just tell you what I really think. (laughs) Yes, you can. (laughs) And stir the pot. (laughs) Go viral. I don't stir the pot to just stir the pot, but I do want to challenge when science supports something, I do want to challenge it. And we need to talk about this. So brio-medical.com as well as drgoodyear.com. That's where they can find me and look for my podcast to launch very soon. Oh, I'm so excited. And Brio is B-R-I-O, correct? Yeah, B-R-I-O-medical.com. Amazing. Well, thank you again for being on the podcast today. You are absolutely wonderful. And I so appreciate all of your information. Well, thank you so much. You are a very clear professional here. This was a very good interview and I enjoyed our time together. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I have one quick favor to ask before you go. If you love today's conversation, would you mind leaving us a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on right now? My whole goal is education. So positive reviews are actually the number one thing that help new people discover the show. You're amazing. I so appreciate it. And I'll catch you on the next episode.